Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Next up, Little Brother. They're a rap group from North Carolina. The three original members, Fonte, Big Pooh, and Ninth Wonder, for those of you keeping score at home, met in college. They were living in the dorms at North Carolina Central University. They got into making music. Ninth Wonder was making beats on his computer. Fonte and Big Pooh were laying down verses on an old church microphone. The three of them weren't imagining a rags-to-riches story. They were basically three music gigs in a dorm room. They did do open mics and local shows. It wasn't going anywhere in particular. North Carolina wasn't exactly New York or Atlanta. The clubs weren't exactly thick with talent scouts. Then Little Brother shared some songs on a hip-hop message board called OK Player. It was 2001. Sharing music on the web was kind of a new thing. The three of them just wanted some feedback, but they ended up getting a career. Yo, six minutes to show time, I was out in the rain with my big pool going over some things. No money in our pockets, just a buck and some change. Ran up in the hideaway with screaming our names. Took the stage like a jet soaring, wilding out with the sweat pouring till I woke up hoarse the next morning. Some DJs got their hands on the MP3s. Influential DJs, including one influential DJ who owned the entire website, Questlove of The Roots. Pretty soon, Little Brother had a deal for their first LP, The Listening. It was unique. It wasn't really reflective of a regional scene. There barely was one where they lived. It wasn't some particular aesthetic or genre. It wasn't hard. It wasn't self-consciously underground. It was two regular guys who happened to be great rappers and a producer with some incredible snare sounds. And that regular Joe quality, it turned out to be a big deal. By indie label standards, the listening was a huge hit. Critics loved it. Little Brother got a major label deal. But then, that second record didn't sell enough. They got dropped. Ninth Wonder left the group. Fonte and Big Pooh recorded as Little Brother a little more. But by the time the late teens rolled around, they hadn't even talked in years. But then they got an offer for a big show, and they picked up the phone, and they talked, and they talked. And then Little Brother was back. Fonte and Pooh put out May the Lord Watch in 2019. They'd been on quite a trip to end up back where they started. And frankly, they sounded happy to be there. They're releasing a documentary about their career later this year. They're touring right now. I was a regular on OKPlayer.com back when they first got started. I'm so excited to talk to them on Bullseye 20 years later. Before I get them on the line, let's listen to a track from May the Lord Watch. It's called Black Magic Make it better. Faces black people make black magic. So pay me every nigga for diamond ad taxes. 
Fonte and Pooh, welcome to Bullseye. Welcome back to Bullseye. It's nice to talk to you. Man, thank you. Thank you for having us. You've achieved the longest spread between interviews by me, (laughs) because I think the first time I talked to you was like 2001 or something. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, man. Yeah, this was early, like, OK Player days. Like, Yeah, you guys had a – it was like a big show opening for The Roots, I think, in North Carolina. Like down where you guys lived, you had your, it was like your first big show was coming out. You had a single on the internet and it was 6.30 in the morning in Santa Cruz, California. Oh my God. <laughs> what a time. <laughs> what a time. <laughs> when the two of you were growing up in North Carolina, were there other, were there people that you could look to like that person's like me and they're a rap star? No, <laughs> um, there there was not. For us, well, for me growing up, I, I grew up in, in North Carolina. Um, we always had people that were making music, but, you know, it only went kind of to a certain level. So like back in the days, um, this was like late 80s, you know what I mean? In Greensboro, there was a record label called Payroll Records. And that was where you had like the Busy Boys, who we now know is Ski Beats, you know what I mean, uh, that went on to produce for Jay and, and everybody. Uh, he certainly was a pioneer uh, at that time. Focus your full attention on everywhere that is expressed, uttered, announced, spoken, or told. Swallow it whole, then let my science explode. But still I'm classified as a sucker. You had like all these guys that were making records and it was local. But again, there for me, there was never of like, oh, they are like me. I always looked at them as like they're older guys. Like, how in the hell do I get to do that someday? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But uh, then, you know, you had, God, man, you had uh, who the, I can't forget the ladies. You had um, Entice and uh, Deadly Venoms, who she later went on to become this group Deadly Venoms. <laughs> but uh but yeah these are kind of early North Carolina you know people that were you know artists that were like going for it and you would hear like okay so and so got signed and you might see a single but then nothing would ever really like come from it so it was a lot of false starts you know what I mean so when we came up at around our time there was a group Typhoo I mean me and Pooh <laughs> we would do shows with Typhoo oh, yeah. they were a huge crew out of Chapel Hill that is signed to at the time they were signed to Mammoth Records and uh, Typhoon, like Hack, uh, God, I want Lovejoy, Tay, like those were like our peoples. And, um, you know, they were super dope and they signed the Mammoth and then something happened with the label or something. But uh, again, this is by this time, this is like 2000, 2001, two, something like that. Um, so when we came in 03 with the listening, it was very much uncharted territory and we had to map our own course. Yeah, I guess the question for me is, like for me growing up in the Bay Area, certainly there were big national acts, right? Hammer hit when I was right. 10 or whatever, right? Eight, I don't know. Um, you know, Digital Underground and so forth. But like if you listed all the people that like were from around that people listened to, it would be people with their own business going on, right? People who were inspired by Too Short and E40 and so forth to like build a local business. And so 
those people, like it was a gift and a curse, right? There mm -hmm. was, it sort of was the end of people getting famous, <laughs> uh, like nationally, but it was a lot of people making a living locally making music. Yeah. And what I'm hearing you describe is the success stories ahead of you guys were people that managed to get a record deal and it didn't work out. Yeah, it wasn't. That's the thing about North Carolina. Um, I, I grew up in Virginia, came down to North Carolina for college when I was 18. But just being here, it wasn't a thing of like in the Bay or in Texas or even Atlanta and obviously New York, where they, they had scenes and it was an entire scene that unless you was there or went there, you had no idea about. And these people were successful in their own terms. North Carolina didn't have that. It was it was like the race to the race to get signed by somebody yeah. somewhere, uh, no matter the level of label. It was just the race to get signed. And it wasn't a I'll say a, a infrastructure or obviously not an industry. It, it wasn't any of that here. And it wasn't that hustle mentality like the Bay had. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't any of that. So it was more so. Are you getting signed or aren't you? Yeah. And trying to figure that out, I think probably Petey, Petey Pablo, he was probably our first, you know, real kind of delegate in the sense of, you know, he actually signed the deal, signed the jive, you know, had Timbaland, you know, doing his singles and stuff, doing his Big records. singles. Big yeah. singles. Yeah. He was probably like really the first one to really plant that flag in terms of seeing a, uh, a, a local, not even a local artist, but just an artist from North Carolina go you know to that kind of heights you know that was the first time we really seen that did you guys think that you were going to become rap stars like you were going to become pd pablo and be on 106 in park <laughs> waving around your head like a helicopter <laughs> <laughs> not, not like that i didn't i didn't know what we would become i thought it would be as far as the fame or the celebrity i'll say i thought it would be more than what it was but you know that wasn't our course was that the goal? Was the goal to make hit singles? Nah, I think the goal, um, you know, just speaking for me, I think the goal was just really just wanting to make something that we were proud of. That's, you know, that's always just in everything that I've done, you know, um, no matter what it is, if it's, you know, if it's LB, if it's Foreign Exchange, if it's Sesame Street, if it's anything, Sherman Showcase, whatever, you know, I just want to make something that I can stand on because you can't control how successful a thing can be. You can't control who's going to like it, who's going to with whatever. You know, all you can control is that, hey, this is something I made, I'm proud of, and we put it out and we stand on it. You know what I mean? Control your part. Yeah, that's all we can control. So for me, that was what it was about. And when we signed to Atlantic and made Minstrel Show, I don't think the idea was hit records. I think the idea for me was just we have to show our original fan base that we can still do us on a major label. You know, those 40, 50,000 people, whoever who bought the listening, we have to still show them that we're not going to let a major label change little brother. And um, that was always the focus. Stick around. More Bullseye Around the Corner from MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, we are talking with rappers Fonte and Big Poo. Their group, Little Brother, influenced a generation of dorm room music makers. The two hadn't talked in years when they found themselves on the phone planning a new album. That reunion record is called 
May the Lord watch. Let's get back to our conversation. Now, hold on, because we're getting into you two being real grown-ups with a real career, and I want to get back to the two of you as 19-year-olds in a dorm room or whatever. <laughs> so when you were 19-year-olds in a dorm room and you were wrapping into a mic, you know, connected to... Church mic. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Car carnival mic. Yeah, the car yeah, we just call it, yeah, yeah. Sound like somebody on the Tilt-A-Whirl or something. Yeah, uh, we, we had real, real crappy equipment. Wrapping into Cool Edit or something on a computer. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Our first album, the listening was done, was mixed, mastered. Well, I don't even matter. It was mixed and recorded on Cool Edit Pro, straight up. <laughs> Excellent. The $20 program that became a $300 program when, when Adobe bought it. But like when you are wrapping into a microphone connected to a desktop computer, connected to a, you know, 288 modem or whatever, was your idea, we're going to get signed and make major label hit records? Or was your idea, maybe we can tour? That's the thing. Like, I don't think we had the, we're going to be stars and make hit records dream. I, well, at least I know I didn't. And obviously Fonte yeah. didn't. You know, our thing was always just trying to make the best possible music we could make with whatever we had. And like I said, I thought, you know, that we would be more as far as the celebrity or the status. I thought that would be more. I didn't think superstar necessarily. Yeah. I thought it would be bigger than what it was, but that wasn't the goal. Yeah. And I'll also say, too, a lot of that, to piggyback off what Pooh was saying, you know, that was really the only paradigm at that time that existed. You know what I mean? So, you know, we were kids from the 80s. So, you know, I grew up in the 80s. So, you know, back then, who were the biggest kind of stars? If you thought of black musicianship or black whatever, it was Prince, Michael Jackson, right? Like that was pretty much the black 80s, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? So when you're thinking of music and we're thinking of careers, and for me, like thinking of, um, you know, with rappers, it was just, you know, these kind of Mount Olympus kind of guys, you know, your Run DMC, your LLs, you know what I mean? Just these kind of larger than life guys. And that was the only kind of paradigm that we saw. We were coming in really early. So at 19, you know, this is, you know, 1998, 99, you know, this is pre-internet really like this is pre you know pre-social media you know what i mean so it was either those are the only places you had to live it was either you made something and it worked for radio and tv or it didn't this whole middle ground this kind of no man's land of the internet now where anything can go <laughs> it wasn't there it was not there <laughs> at all when the two of you and ninth wonder the original producer of the group were hanging out uh when you were 19 and 20 and 21 years old, what records were you nerding out over? Um, man, it was anything JD Dilla produced. So like he really, for me, was very much like the North Star, you know what I mean? And still is in a lot of ways, you know what I mean? Um, I can't think of any song that I got stumped on and I thought like, you know, what would Dilla do? And it always makes the song better. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so, yeah, anything Dilla, J.D., I could get my hands on. Um, MF Doom. Man, um, any the Soul Quarians, they pretty much had me, like, in a headlock at that time. So, you know, Common Water for Chocolate, you know, Slum, Things Fall Apart, just anything in that lane. Black Star, like, all of that stuff, you know, it felt like it spoke to me. 
you know, as an artist. And I was like, yeah, I, I can do this. This feels authentic to who I am. Was that the same for you, Pooh? Similar. Um, I was actually getting introduced to a lot of music during that time. Radio, that's all I had. And BMG, shout out to BMG for the yes, indeed. how many CDs for one set. <laughs> uh, but I was getting introduced to Dilla. I've, I heard his music before, but I didn't know him or who he was. So just I was getting introduced to these different groups and different types of music and things. So for me, it was more of a exploration stage of my development and getting introduced, not just even in hip hop, but just other Fonte introduced me to other genres of music and, you know, uh, Beck. That's when I got turned on to Beck when oh, yeah, I was in college. Yeah. We uh we actually had a show on our um, audio net, son. audio net, <laughs> and we didn't play no rap. We didn't play no R and B. Was there a point where the three of you, as little brother, felt like, oh, maybe this is a real thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think the moment that we realized that it was a real thing was when we recorded our first song, Speed. You know, that was like the first song that we did together. And it was just like, okay, like we got something here. Like we did, there's something in this, you know what I mean? And, uh, we just decided to keep going. It was like, you know, this feels good. I think, you know, we got some good chemistry and um, we all decided let's just try, to keep going. Let's try a few more. Yeah, let's try a few more. And a few more turned into the listening. And uh, when the listening was over, it was still for me just, uh, you know, just listening to that album when it was done and just, you know, pulling up to my apartment at the time and just, you know, listen to it in the car. And um, I could tell that, you know, my life was going to change. I didn't know how it was going to change. I didn't know, you know, I wasn't thinking in terms of, oh, I'm about to make all this money. I'm about to do this, that, and the third. I just knew that that was kind of the point of no return after hearing that album in its entirety and listening to what we had done. Let's hear a bit of speed from my guest's little brother's debut album, The Listening, from 2003, um, released a little bit before that as a single. It's from the crib to the lab to your job to make a profit and that the day's in still ain't got nothing to accomplish and it's just the way it's going down. But on the real, yo, I think I need to slow it down and slow it down. It's too fast for me. It's I was playing that song on my music show on the radio in college of a burned CD. I burned an MP3 <laughs> that I downloaded directly onto a CD, brought in a burned CD to the radio station. It was a very transitional time, and the internet turned out to be, now it's entirely normal, it's typical for mm -hmm. a rap star to have grown from an internet following. Um, but the internet turned out to be completely transformational in your careers. Um, how did that happen? Songs being put up that weren't intended to be put up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, DJ Brainchild. Yeah, shout out to him. Um, shout out to DJ Brainchild. He was sent a few songs. Just, you know, we were looking for unbiased opinion on the songs. We thought they were good and everybody around us thought they were good and uh, we trusted his judgment on music just by being on OK Player on the boards and, and, and how he commented on different music. And Let's pause here for a second, Pooh, because you're saying this as though everyone understands what you're saying. What you're saying is DJ Brainchild was a friend of yours 
from a message board. From a message board. A message board, which, yeah. Which predated social media. It yeah. was the first social media. Straight exactly. up. And so had you ever met him in real life? No. No. I, yeah, at that time, I don't think we had met Brainchild. Nah, no. He was just someone that, you know, we just saw on OK Player that was, you know, this message board that just creative people from all disciplines, genres, writers, rappers, producers, like everything would just be there. College radio host. You know what I mean? Come on. Let's not, <laughs> let's not forget. Put some respect on it. So, but yeah, you have all of these people. And so Brainchild was just a guy that, you know, he would always talk about music and, you know, me and him would chop it up. And so I think I sent him some records and then he ended up like putting them out like on, some, on his site, on his site John. or whatever, the John, it was the John. And I was like, yo, what you doing? Like, what are you talking about? But not understanding, it's like, no, this is going to open you up to more people. You know what I mean? Did the three of you, the two of you and Ninth Wonder, were the three of you and Little Brother at the time on the same page? Like, were you going for the same thing? Were you in the same place? Absolutely not. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I tell people all the time, like, when you start off together, like whatever the configuration of your crew or group is, you do have one thing in common. You want to make it. But making it looks different. Making for it every looks person. different to yeah. everybody. And that's the conversation that no one ever has. Yeah. <laughs> is what does making it look like to you? What does it look like to you? You just know we want to make it. We got the same goal. And that's where things go off the rails quickly. Yeah. Nah, we were not on the same page at all. You know what I mean? And, you know, and just at that time, I mean, you know, we're in our 20s. You know what I'm saying? You know, 22 is legally it's an adult. You know what I'm saying? Like you can buy beer and cigarettes and like go to war and kill people. But you're, you're really not. Yeah. In your mind. You know what I mean? You really shouldn't be trusted with heavy decisions. <laughs> yeah, you know I mean, like it still requires a lot of, you know, adult supervision, you know, what I mean, or, or or the supervision of someone that's far more experienced uh, in that area. And that was something that we really didn't have. You know, it really was us just flying by the seat of our pants, figuring out as we, as we went along. So, uh, you know, I think us not having those early conversations later on is, you know, what led to ninth leaving and just, you know, the kind of animosity that. We had back then and just, you know, just everything getting crazy. But um, no one preps you for those things. You know, like like Pooh said, making it, you just want to make it. But having those conversations and learning what making it looks like for each individual member. If you don't have those first, you're dead in the water. What should you have talked about? What it looks like. Because, this is the thing people don't realize. Like when you're that young, you're not only growing as an artist, more importantly, for us, we were growing as men. We yeah. were learning how to be men. Learning how to be men and coming into manhood and learning who you are changes things for you. And so those are the conversations. It, it's a continuous conversation. It's not just one. Exactly. It's yeah. continuous. Nah, being, oh man, being in a group, yeah, it's like a marriage. You know what I mean? It very much is like a marriage in the sense that it is, you know, what I say, it's a living, breathing document. You know, what I mean, it's something that always is expanding, changing. And what was true on Monday, it may not be true on Tuesday or Wednesday. You know, what I mean, so definitely some of the early conversations that we should have had, you know, just, you know, touring. You know, what I mean, it's like, OK, do you like the tour? Do you want a tour? What do you think about touring? How do you feel about recording? 
how do you want to record the sessions or not? Do you want to do it? Should we get someone else to do it? Anything. I mean, and these are things that like, it's not even, you know, strange enough, it's not even about money. You know what I'm saying? It's not, you. it ain't nothing to talk about money because you ain't making no damn money in the beginning. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's not even that you, you know, you had to talk about money per se. It was just more so of just about just logistic. Like how are all these pieces going to fit together? If I know that you're not a morning person, or if I know that, okay, this this guy is more of a nighttime guy, he's probably not going to want to do early morning sessions. So how do we work for that? If I know this guy is like, yeah, I know y'all like the tour, but like, I ain't trying to tour at all. I hate that. Then, okay, we can have that conversation. Um, record deals. Do you want to sign to a major label? <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, what does success look like for you? Is success for you a million records on Atlantic? Or is it, you know, 20,000 on an indie or whatever? You know what I mean? Those are just conversations that I think are, well, for us were impossible at 22 we, years we, old. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't learn that until <laughs> like last you know. year. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Are you glad you signed to a major label? I am. I'm glad. I am. Yeah. I, yeah. The experience was, was priceless. I think all artists, you should do it if for no reason, just then to demystify it. You know what I'm saying? Because you have <laughs> this thing in your mind that you think is just going to be the promised land and it ain't that. It's not. Yeah. You know, so Jesus ain't waiting for you at the label. Nah, you still the work uh -huh. is still yours. <laughs> it's still yours. So nah, it I'm I'm definitely glad. You know, like I said, the the, the experience, um, say said demystifying what a label is, and then even some of the relationships that we still have from people that worked at the label. To this day. I think it was a moment where a lot of big record labels had the idea that they could make a business out of what was then called underground rap, right? Mm -hmm. MCA signed all these people, mm -hmm. you know, and the Black Eyed Peas became giant hit makers, but mostly it was rough going because people were making records that were <laughs> either bad versions of pop records or they were uh, good versions of the records they'd made before that were bad for pop radio. Bad for pop radio, yeah. Facts. So... How much perspective did you have when you signed that major label record deal about what you were supposed to do if you wanted to make money beyond that advance that you got, whatever it was? It's the thing about us. We didn't care. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that was that was part of our, you know, eventual doom at a label. Uh, we were very... Uh, adamant about what we wanted to do and who we were and who we wanted to be. And we, we weren't going to allow anybody to change us. And, yeah. you know, our thing was y'all signed us because of what y'all heard and saw. So allow us to be us yeah. and get out the way, <laughs> you know, straight up. And, yeah. and they did yeah, for the most part. They I mean, did. They, they, did, they did, you know, so that, that's why I, I never had any problems, you know, going through the little brother story, you know, the most, you know, the most ironic thing about it is that it's really not a story of like this little indie group versus the big bad record label. Like, listen, we made the record we wanted to make. We put it out. They trusted us. They, they was like, all right, this is what y'all want to roll with. Cool. And, you know, we put it out and when it didn't work, they let us go. And it's just like, dude, 
I'm not mad at all. I got the experience. They didn't hold us up, you know, keep us hostage, not, you know, holding us up in paperwork and all that. Like, nah, it was just like, okay, guys, it, it didn't work. We think y'all are talented, but, you know, it's all good. And so, you know, I we didn't have any idea in terms of, you know, trying to make records for the radio specifically because at that time what radio was we just didn't fit into that you know what i mean at that time that was like when the snap records was going off you know what i mean and so that was kind of what the wave was at that time and those records were fun but we trying to make a snap record or trying to make something that would fit into that kind of very specific uh box you know that just wasn't who we were and like Pooh said we just wanted to do us so Signing to a major label, our mentality was, look, y'all signed us for us and our fans been rocking with us because we're us. So we's going to keep doing us and let it fall how it's going to fall. When we were 20 years old, there weren't any 40-year-old rappers. (laughs) And I wonder if having found that voice when you were 21 years old or whatever helped you understand what you could be rapping as a real grown-up. Yeah, it it definitely did. I, I think just one of the key elements for me was just approaching approaching our art as writers and not as rappers. You know what I'm saying? I think if you think of yourself as a 44-year-old rapper, then it's just kind of like, oh, my God, like you're the old guy in the club. But if you think of yourself as a 44-year-old writer and one of the things that you write just happens to be raps— then that opens you up to a whole nother way of of thinking because it's like, I can still write and tell my story, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, I'm just writing and telling it, you know what I mean? And so I've always said that hip hop was kind of like, well, rap music in particular, but, you know, rap was just always kind of like that guy that was just wilding in the streets, you know what I'm saying, as a teenager and thought he'd be dead at like 20 and now he's 40 and it's like, what in the hell? Like, I did not expect to make it <laughs> this far. Not only did I not expect to make it this long, no one expected me to still be alive. You know what I mean? And so now we're at a point where you're able to be, you know, a 40-year-old rapper, 40, 50, whatever. You're able to be who you are at that age because there are still people your age they still want that music. You know what I'm saying? They're still interested to hear their stories reflected in that way. And as long as you serve that audience and stay true to them, you can rap forever. You can do it as, as long as you feel like doing it. It's not a it's not a physical sport. It's not like basketball where it's like, all right, bro, the knees are getting a little wobbly. You might want to you might want to sit it down. You know, rap is, you know, it's 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 mental, you know what I mean? And as long as your brain is sharp and you keep, you know, enriching yourself, educating yourself. You can do it for as long as you want and just keep serving the audience that shows up for you. Pooh, did you still feel that way when you had other jobs five years ago? For me, it wasn't. I think it was me really finding my way. Nothing to do with rap or how old I was or any of that. It was just more so me trying to figure out, still trying to figure out who I wanted to be, you know, within, you know, this this industry. Um and I think that was the biggest thing for me is just finding, hey, look, I was in my 30s, but I was still growing. You know, I was still maturing and still uh, understanding or coming to an understanding of who, who I was, and, you know, who I am today. And that's more so what that was for me was just 
I call it the great uh, recalibration <laughs> in my life. It's just recalibrating. Um, and, and I mean, even, you know, in my 40s now, like there's still moments where I have to recalibrate just to reset sort of. So that's more so what it was. I, I never bought into the whole you can't be a certain age and still rapping. I always thought that was more marketing ploy than, than reality. <laughs> yeah. Um, because you turn, you see other genres and you see, you know, their artists allowed to grow yeah. within, you know, and, and the audience grows with them. And, and that didn't, you know, wasn't always. Now, hip hop wasn't afforded that same. Yeah, it wasn't afforded that same, that same luxury. So I never really bought into that. But yeah, five, six, seven, how many years ago it was for me? That was just a recalibration period. We've got more to get into with Little Brother. Fonte and Pooh didn't speak for five years. So what was it like to pick up the phone? Back in a minute, it's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Where am I? On Maximum Fun. What do you want? A podcast miniseries about The Prisoner. Whose side are you on? That would be telling, but okay, I'm on my own side. It's one of my favorite ever TV shows. We want a podcast on it. A prisoner podcast. You won't get it. By hook or by crook, we will. Who are you? I'm Elliot Kalin. Who is number one? Jesse Thorne. But you are John Hodgman. I am not a prisoner podcaster. I am a free man. (laughs) Are you okay? (laughs) Elliot, are you all right? Okay, I'll watch it. All four episodes of V-Potting You are out now. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Fonte and Big Pooh of the rap group Little Brother. The three original members of Little Brother, the two of you and Ninth Wonder, have had a lot of starts and stops over the years, a lot of integrations and disintegrations. There were five years where the two of you didn't talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Were you not talking to each other or were you not speaking to each other if that distinction makes sense yeah nah we weren't even speaking like it was no no communication at all um we we weren't talking Pooh and i i think we didn't talk from like 2011 to like 2016 yeah i think we sent like two emails yeah it was like you know administrative stuff we had to do and it was just like Here's your money, you know what I mean? Like, it was, <laughs> you know what I mean? Essentially, what it was, it was so professional. Yeah. Um, it was like we never knew each other. That's what it looked like. Yeah. Hello, Thomas. This is Fonte here, and you know what I mean? Yeah. It was so. Yeah. It, it wasn't us at all. But um, but yeah. So now nah, it was like five years we didn't talk. Uh, I think me and Ninth we didn't talk for like four or five years, something like that. You know what I mean? Pooh and Ninth didn't talk for some time. Yeah, I mean, it was it was, it was, was a mess. You know what I mean? But, you know, when I look back over our story, I think that that was what we needed. We all kind of had to go to our respective corners to just, I mean, you know, just grow the f- up, really. You know what I mean? Um, you know, it's very hard when you start something really young at that time, like, you know, Pooh was saying earlier, like when you're still trying to figure out who you are and it is very hard to figure out who you are in the context of something that's paying your rent. You know what I'm saying? And then you're not just having to figure out who you are. 
you have to figure out who these other two people are as well. That you thought you knew. You thought you knew you so well. you thought you knew, and but you did not. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, people don't understand how, how much that is, right? And when you, and, and on top of that, not having nobody to walk you through that yeah you know not having guidance like to to help you navigate these things um you end up like we ended up when you weren't speaking how sad were you how mad were you and how just checked out were you i think for me it was more of a it was more disappointment i mean there was some frustration but i think it was more disappointment and i said before like you don't realize how integrated that other person was in your life until the funny thing is not until they gone. It's until you get them back in your life. (laughs) And then you realize like, damn, yo, I was missing a lot because that disappointment, that frustration, that anger, whatever is blocking you you from from seeing the bigger picture. See, seeing Mm -hmm. the bigger picture. But when that, so like when me and Tate started talking again and, you know, rebuilding our relationship. That's when I was really, really like, damn, like I, I really missed him in my life. And, you know, even people around me would say they, they would say like, yeah, man, you yeah, it, you're different now. Yeah. Nah, nah. When the, the realest compliment that I got, we I got on the album, uh, Made a Lord Watch came out. Uh, we were doing a show in D.C. and um just so happened the same night, Farrell Monch was doing a show at uh, at the Kennedy Center. And so he was like the early show. Our show was a little later. So I went over to, you know, his show, you know, show love to him. And uh, I ran into Styles P in the, he was like in the hallway. And, you know, I hadn't seen Styles in a minute. You know what I'm saying? I, I hadn't seen P since we shot the Farrell Monch video like a while back. But uh, anyway, I saw him and first thing I was like, yo, that album, oh my God. He gave me a big hug. He was like, yo. He said, yo, man, y'all missed each other. He said, yo, y'all sound like y'all missed each other. And I was like, yeah, we did. To get knocked down again because somebody covered material things that don't mean nothing. Me and my brother used to dream that I would be something. So when me and Tay hit the stage, it ain't just for the accolades. So sorry to aggravate. I just want to be the man my mama and my grandma raised. Literary bars that my grandma raised. Crowds fall out like gamma rays. When me and Pooh connect like Wonder Twins activate. And so just to get that from another just veteran i mean you talking about like a vet like you know somebody is you know dude has been through wars in this game you know what i mean and and also a member of a group who understands how hard it is to keep that going you know for him for someone like that of that stature to to recognize you know that we have you know rebuilt our brotherhood and we really did it for the right reasons that to me was the biggest compliment that we received from the album i'll i'll, I'll never forget that well Fonte Pooh, thanks for coming on Bullseye. It's nice to get to talk to you guys. Nice to see your faces. Good to see you as well, man. Thank you, good man. This, this has been, hey, look, it's always a good time. Yeah, totally full circle, man. Thank, thank you for having me. This, this really means a lot. Fonte and Big Pooh of Little Brother. They've got a documentary on the way. They are touring to celebrate the 20th anniversary of their debut album, The Listening. We'll have a link to the dates on our website. Just go to the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun 
in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house in Lincoln Heights, I planted some trees out front uh, and I was pretty sure that they were dead because I must have planted them wrong or whatever. Anyway, all the leaves fell off pretty much right when I put them in the ground. Uh, I was very worried, but it turns out, nope, they're just deciduous trees. Now that it's almost springtime, they are budding full of flowers and new leaves right outside my window. And it turns out, I don't kill everything I touch. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Congratulations to Kevin. He is on parental leave. He has obtained a child. Uh, We're so happy for Kevin and Kelly. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Tabitha Myers and Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Merritt Davis. Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by DJW, also known as the great Dan Wally. Our theme song is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Our thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us in those places. Follow us. We will share with you all of our interviews. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.